Blog Talk Radio. April 26, 2016, excuse me, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff. And if you look over either on the blog at don'tletitgo.com or over here on Blog Talk Radio, you'll see the title of today's show is Will Trump's be a fake presidency. And I'll kind of walk you through my idea for the title. This morning I was looking at New York Times like I often do when I wake up. You've got to start off with a dose of bad news, right? But I was looking and there was a story about the tax plan, the new tax plan that Trump is promising to make all of our lives better with. And you get the impression in reading the New York Times story that there's not really a solid tax plan at all in place. And in fact, there's just some really tantalizing sounding proposals that he's putting together. There's no solid piece of legislation. They don't have a way to quote pay for it. And I started to think, well, this is what we call a Potemkin tax plan um, named after Potemkin village. I'll explain in a second if you don't know. And so then I was thinking, okay, well, he's coming up on his first hundred days. They're going to evaluate him. What has he gotten done? Supreme Court mostly, maybe repealing a few regulations. But in terms of some of the big ticket items that he promised, he hasn't accomplished much at all. So I was thinking, well, why not Potemkin presidency? And then I talked to my friend, Sunny Lohman, and she says, well, not everybody knows what Potemkin Village is, so you're going to have to put the word fake in there somewhere. She gave me a reality check. Sunny's really good for a reality check about you know what your audience might know or might not know or what you might know or not know. As a matter of fact, a couple weeks ago, I had this show about schism and some guy called in and took me for a ride and I didn't know it because I'm that ignorant and Sunny had to tell me what was going on on my own show. I'm not going to say anything more. You can go back and listen to it if you want, but it just shows you that I'm more ignorant than I might like to think that I am. So anyway, thank you, Sunny, for telling me I got to use the word fake. And then I talked to my friend Kristen and she says, yeah, why don't you just have fake as the title? And then, yeah, I can tell you about Potemkin Village. So that was part of my thought process was this idea of a Potemkin Village. Is Donald Trump going to have a Potemkin presidency? What does Potemkin Village mean? Go to Wikipedia, our handy dandy source, and make sure we don't get the reference wrong. But what it means 
now figuratively is any construction, whether literal or figurative, could be the presidency, built solely to deceive others into thinking that a situation is better than it really is. So is Donald Trump going to have a whole lot of smoke and mirrors to make you think that he's doing a fabulous job, just stupendous, incredible, better than any other president, and yet really not be doing much of anything at all? The term actually derived from stories of a fake portable village that was built only to impress the Empress Catherine in Russia during her journey to the Crimea. Someone named Grigory Potemkin erected phony portable settlements and then moved them from place to place in order to impress her, but they were just made of cardboard or whatever the equivalent was. So that's what it's about. And the tax plan is one thing that I thought of and other things that Trump has promised that haven't come to fruition, like the repeal of Obamacare, maybe even the wall. And as we're going to begin with right now, foreign policy, right? He dropped some Moab in, in the desert, and I don't know if there's any been, you know, been any follow-up on that. Surely he hasn't eradicated ISIS. There's still stories about ISIS. And now he seems to be making a whole lot of noise about North Korea and the threat that North Korea supposedly poses to us and that maybe he's even thinking of doing something preemptively about it. So, you know, is, is there anything to this? Fox News is playing along. They had a story today. I've got the link for you over at the blog at don'tletitgo.com. North Korea's weapons progress, uh, excuse me, the progress, their progress is a top concern as U.S. senators have a rare briefing. You know, so it's such a concern that these U.S. senators, they're having this rare briefing. They're going to hear about the threat of North Korea. So really, you know, we should take Donald Trump seriously. Fox News is in the tank for Trump, and it's really kind of scary. And then there was this commentary that I found over at Chicago Tribune, Headline, Trump should try this instead of threatening North Korea, and they're talking about sanctions and stuff. But what they're saying is that Trump is, quote, distracting the public with reckless threats of war. And luckily, I was able to secure, rope in, finagle a guest to talking to us about this. I've got Gianluca Spezza, is that correct? Did I pronounce it correctly uh, on the line yes, here with me? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Well, thank you yeah. very much for joining me on, on fairly f- short notice. And, of course, I've only recently met you over there on Twitter. For people, yeah. mo- pretty much everybody on the show who's listening right now doesn't know who you are, so I'm going to introduce you. Uh, Gianluca is a Ph.D. candidate at the International Institute of Korean Studies, University of Central Lancashire in the U.K., and also the research director at North Korea News, which is the leading website for news and analysis on North Korea and inter-Korean affairs. His research interests include North Korean society, particularly the education sector, and the relationship between North Korea and various international organizations. He works with North Korean statistics, data from the South Korean government, data from all of the different international organizations that have been working in or with North Korea since 1975. He also says he researches issues related to national identity, national interests, society and politics in the Middle East. 
immigration, state compliance with international norms, and the influence of beliefs on domestic and international politics. He's been published and featured and interviewed on North Korea News, BBC, The Guardian, Newsweek Korea and Danish Broadcasting Corporation, among others. He's lived and worked in a number of countries, including South Korea, Thailand, Netherlands, Venezuela, Finland, and Canada. So I uh, I feel quite lucky to have you as a guest here, Jean-Luc. So thank you for joining well, me. Thank, and, thank you for having me. My, and, yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, my, my main overall question for you is how real of a risk is North Korea to the United States primarily, but to anyone else secondarily? Uh, it's much more of a risk to South Korea than it is to any other country. Uh, to the United States, technically, if you want a very short answer, no. It's not a risk, uh, although it very much depends on what the United States, uh, and particularly the, the present administration, wants to do with North Korea, uh, because we're coming from uh, 70 years division between the two Korean states and then uh, the various U.S. administrations that have changed line a number of times in regards to the country, whereas the government of North Korea has been quite monolithic and has never changed its direction. So Mm -hmm. ideally, on a planet where you only have North Korea on one side and the U.S. on the other side of the planet, there wouldn't be any risk because, believe it or not, North Korea is not particularly interest in the United States per se. However, in, in the real world, where you have a number of other countries, uh, China, South Korea, and Japan, and the U.S. Have, has uh, been patrolling the planet, for better or worse, for the last 50 years. So in this scenario, it could represent a threat if the U.S. were to put boots on the ground. But I believe that will never happen. So. so what do you think of what Trump is doing, you know, making a lot of noise primarily and stuff? Do you think that it is a, you know, reckless behavior, as the Chicago Tribune calls it, something that's actually going to put us at risk? Or is he just trying to distract uh, from the fact that he's getting nothing done? What, what you know, what, what's the effect? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not American, but I was quite happy when Trump won because that meant to me that Hillary Clinton hadn't won, which was the most important thing. Well, uh, however, we're going to we're going to see how true that is in the long term, Jean-Luc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I shared the disappointment of a number of people who had believed that Trump could implement an agenda of non-interventionism in foreign policy and economic nationalism, say something that would satisfy the, the, the Tea Party base, yeah? Uh, mm-hmm. But that has turned out to be quite a disappointment. Now, for Korea, the problem with uh, Trump, as with any other administration, is that the U.S., at, particularly at this moment, doesn't really have any North Korea specialist worth of that name working in the White House. If oh, you no. know the people... Yeah, no, 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 absolutely not. But just like when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, they didn't have one single employee that spoke Pashto, which is the language of the majority. Uh, that's the problem of getting into foreign countries without the, the, the knowledge that is required. What I'm worried about, what every North Korea watcher and expert is worried about, is that Trump is going to North Korea first to correct a course of absolute nothing, which was this strategic 
patients policy from Obama, which basically meant we have no idea about what to do with North Korea. We don't really care. And so we're just going to sweep it under the rug. Now, he's going to correct that by playing a tough guy. Now, North Korea is not Libya. It will not go down as peacefully. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that for somebody like Trump at the moment, I don't know who's advising him. Nobody really knows who's advising him on North Korea. But you you don't have uh, the experts that I know, the people that I work with, and everybody in the field who really knows North Korea, the language, the documentation, the, the, the people in charge, none of them work in D.C. None of them. Wow. So I have no idea where he's getting his advice from. You have these big names in D.C., all these uh, generally people in the CIA. Uh, you had one expert, uh, Sumi Terry, sometime back. Now she's at Columbia University. Um, she had some knowledge, but one of the few, like white flies. So there's, I would be surprised if you had people that actually speak the language or ever bothered to use the, like, the resources that we have, for example, at, at NK News or the documentation. So he's going to Korea with a, a very threatening stance. Now, North Korea being the desperate state that it is, mm-hmm. when you push a, de- a desperate state in, into a corner, you probably get a reaction that you don't, don't want. And the problem is it's not American people who would pay the price because technically North Korea does not have any capability, not even remotely, to hit any U.S. target. Um, well, so, but listen to this, right? Result. I mean, and, and this is what I was going to try to come back and play devil's advocate or play Fox News advocate for you here. They said 100 <laughs> senators, 100 U.S. senators were invited to a rare briefing on White House grounds. It's hard to overstate how concerned officials are. Am I sounding worried? It's hard to overstate how concerned officials are about the technological <laughs> advancements out of Pyongyang. Uh, they, they, he's got a reputation, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un, for bizarre behavior, and the nuclear arsenal and oh, aspirations no, no. of the republic are being taken seriously. They've had five nuclear tests in the past 11 years, the last several being the most destructive. Now they're threatening a sixth. And then there was a New York official newspaper, excuse me, New York, North Korea official newspaper said in a front page editorial, its military is prepared, quote, to bring closure, bring to closure the history of U.S. scheming and nuclear blackmail. And again, quoting from this official newspaper, there is no limit to the strike power of the People's Army armed with our style of cutting edge military equipment, including various precision (laughs) miniaturized nuclear weapons and submarine launch ballistic missiles, end quote. Aren't you worried about that? Okay. No, I'm not because I read those statements day in, day out, uh, and I've been doing that for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> that's what they that's their job to publish that, that kind of stuff. The Nodong Shinmun, which is the only official, well, one of the three or four official, that's the party newspaper site. Uh, they have to write that kind of stuff. That's what that's their job. Um, keep in mind, there's a propaganda season for North, uh, North Korea that every year publishes the same things over and over and over again. Um, it starts in April and it ends in September. It's an official thing. It's the most predictable place on the planet, and that's why I I, la- I laugh when I read the media and say the unpredictable. No, it's not unpredictable. It's very boring. Uh, 
So what they do from April is they have a, a, a set of key dates. So the foundation of the country, the birthday of Kim Il-sung, um, the, the foundation of the People's Army, the start of the Korean War and the end of the Korean War. They all fall between now and September 9th. In this period, uh, U.S. and South Korea also hold periodical uh, military drills, which are held very close to the maritime borderline with North Korea. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a very small country. North Korea itself is the, sound of, it's, it's the size of Greece, like the size mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania. South Korea is slightly smaller. Now, the borderline has some of the islands there, the one that North Korea shelled in 2011. And uh, they're very, very close. So they can see the U.S. and South Korean military holding these drills. And you never know what could go wrong. Some of the bullets, well, you know, some of the shelling might go in, in the wrong place or they mm-hmm. might misinterpret something. But there have been skirmishes and firing at each other between North and South for 70 years now, since the end, that the, well, the temporary halting of the Korean War. Now, uh, what you've read there, uh, Kim Jong-un is not unpredictable or, or crazy, not is the country. It's actually one of the most rational entities that you can find today in the world. Uh, they know exactly what they're doing, and they know exactly well, how rational, to Well, rational insofar as he adheres to a communist and totalitarian ideology. Right? Rational, so that, that's our rational, I mean, no, no, rational means, well, what I mean by rational is somebody who um, can choose an appropriate strategy uh, means to an end. That's mm-hmm. it. Okay. That's the, the rational part. They know what they're doing. That's the bottom line. And what right. they're doing is to push the rhetoric to a level which would uh, force South Korea and the U.S. to go back to the negotiation table and give more concessions. That means less sanctions, a little bit more aid, and mm-hmm. essentially buying time. That's what they've, they've been doing very successfully since the halting of the Korean War. And since they had a crisis in 95 that forced them to uh, relatively open to the rest of the world. So in so, any of this, any of this kind of... Uh, alarmism that we're reading in this Fox News story, you would discount it entirely. They're saying, you know, all they have to do is make smaller, lighter nuclear weapons that can be carried, you know, intercontinental ballistic missile wise, and then suddenly we're we're at risk. Maybe they can Uh, do that now because four or five years ago they were saying it's going to be four or five years. Some of them are saying four or five years from now. But you you think there's no real risk now, and really they're just trying to get us to the table. There are risks. The bigger risk, which uh, people don't notice this, but uh, the major risk with a country like North Korea, like it was with the Soviet Union when that place went down, is proliferation. If you ask now what happened to a lot of the deadly uh, stock of weapons that were in the warehouses of the Soviet Union in the 80s, nobody knows. Mm. They're in Chechnya, they're in Pakistan, they're in Iran, they are in places where you don't want them to be. The same problem with North Korea. The problem with North Korea at the moment is proliferation. Now, of course, if, they are, if the problem that is North Korea is less, to faster another eight years, like it was less, less to faster uh, under Obama, 
of course you will have some more problems. But the goal of the regime is not to attack the United States. If they ever were to do that and say reach Seattle or Alaska with a with an ICBM, they would know that they would be incinerated one hour after that. And the regime has only had one goal in mind for the past 70 years, which is survival. So they're not right. going to do that. What they do is blackmail. And the more technologically advanced they become, the better they can blackmail the United States. Yeah. And of South course. Korea and Japan and all the neighbors. Uh, their intention is not that. The, the, the goal of the regime is survival and ultimately the reunification of the peninsula under North Korean terms. Right. That's the thing. Now, now, and the situation between U- U.S. and South Korea is also more complicated than it looks. It's difficult to launch an attack without South Korea military uh, agreeing on to that. And, and that might be difficult to get that agreement, in your opinion, as well? Um, there's a new, uh, there are, there's an election coming now in the South and probably whoever, whoever wins is going to be either left of center or very left wing. That means mm. more opening towards North Korea, like you had during the early 2000s with the sunshine policy when they, they, they thought they were going to reunify. So you're going to have a South Korean state that, that is less pro-American or more anti-American in a way. Um, and that's going to be hard for Trump. Now, as to your original question, should we worry, should we discount and entirely what we read on Fox News and whatnot? I would have dismissed that, as many do, if a president like Obama was in power. But now we have Trump. It's a completely mm-hmm. different animal. And as I said, Trump is more prone because of his personality and because of the lack of advisor or better yet, the presence of, uh, around him of people that tend to react emotionally. Uh, I'm sure you followed what happened with the Syria missile strike. Yes. I, I don't know how much of that is true, but apparently uh, the influence of somebody like Steve Bannon, which I personally like a lot, vanished. And, and has been overshadowed by the influence of pretty much his family. So his daughter and uh, Jared Kushner, is that the name? Well, you know you know what he said. He said, I am my own strategist, <laughs> which is a <laughs> scary thought. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's a scary thought because he clearly has no, no knowledge of foreign policy. And that's why I was happy when he promised the the candidate Trump is basically completely different from President Trump, and that's that's unfortunate. Uh, he he was pro- he he won on a campaign of non-intervention, and now mm-hmm. he's going all the way. But I am afraid he's really vulnerable to this crying or emotional reaction from somebody like his daughter. And that he would consider actions that then would have tragic consequences on millions of people in South Korea um, because he thinks that he can shell North Korea like he did Syria. That's not something that he can do. Oh, gosh, no. It, it's yeah. an entirely different country. But I don't know if you've ever been to South Korea or if you have some friends no, there. No, unfortunately. Than, I've, I've met people from South Korea who seem like the nicest, nicest people, but that's it. 
it's geographically is very small. Seoul is 35 kilo, uh, um, sorry, 35 miles from the border. It's really close. Wow. Uh, you, aside from the from the uh, I think 30,000 or 40,000 US military there between Seoul and Paju, which is a city right across the border, uh, right before the border. You have millions of the, the Seoul metropolitan area all, all around. So from the airport to Seoul, it, it contains 22 million people, almost half of the population. And wow. uh, North Korea do, doesn't need one gram of a nuke to turn Seoul into a sea of fire. When you read on, on, on North Korean propaganda and documents that they will turn Seoul into a sea of fire, what they mean is, they have a lot of heavy artillery, conventional artillery, placed right before the DMZ, which is the border between the two countries. Mm-hmm. With that artillery, they can easily shell Seoul, which unfortunately strategically lies in a very, very bad place. So you have the border with North Korea to the north, you have the sea to the west, and you have the mountains to the east. The only way out is south. There's only one highway. On Korean Thanksgiving, everyone goes south, and that highway gets incredibly congested. You take two days to reach oh, no. the south. It's a very short journey. Yeah. Now, imagine if they were to shell that place. Right. You would have millions of people dead in one day. That's the real problem. Right. I mean, it's nothing so- that the South Korean military cannot counter on its own, but still, the the... the the damage and the human cost would be unbearable. Exactly. So let me ask you this question. If a miracle occurred and Trump brought you in as an advisor, <laughs> what, what in the world do yeah. you tell him to do in this mess? I mean, I've heard, for instance, you know, when you were talking about proliferation, I was thinking about Pakistan yeah. and I was thinking about yeah. what, you know, John Bolton once told me about Pakistan that basically we have we have to placate them, we have to bribe them not to proliferate these weapons or be irresponsible with exactly. the weapons that they have. Exactly. So, is yeah. is that the sort of thing that you would recommend to Trump? Uh, well, John Bolton is right. He's not very liked um, among the Korea community. Um, oh no, I was I was making right. an analogy uh, about what he said about Pakistan. So I'm not I'm not bringing in ma- John Bolton as an advisor. Yeah, no, but what see, would with places with places like like Pakistan, you do have to worry because of the ideology that they have. Uh, North Korea does not have a belief in the in the afterlife. They don't care. Their their life is now. Being an atheist in some way is sort of protective. With, with right. Pakistan, I would worry because they think there's an afterlife to gain from bombing somebody. So you see where the problem starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nukes in Pakistan are, are, are more dangerous for that. For North Korea, but, uh, believe it or not, there's uh, I have an article co- coming out soon. I just interviewed a specialist, uh, was a professor. He he's American, so he designed a plan which is very similar to the. I don't know if you're familiar with the Mofad Fund. There was a plan to buy out Hamas in Palestine and seize all hostility. Um, mm. So they have this plan designed for North Korea. This professor uh, did it, and he just published a book about that. Very similar in uh, money 
to the Iran deal, which didn't go down very well with conservatives, of course. Mm-hmm. It would run at about $170 billion, and it's designed to buy out the entire country from the top 12 families that constitute the elite to all the ranks of the military and even every single North Korean family. And it's designed to basically guarantee a peaceful transfer of power from the northern military to the south and have a gradual reunification with the south taking over Hmm. and reconstituting North Korean society because you have basically 20 million people that in terms of progress and commerce and education and training are useless. They don't know anything. So the plan, of, of course, includes amnesty and sort of a free pass for the Kim family. Yes. Which would be free to go to live in Switzerland or Geneva or China, whatever they want. And he also designed this plan to, he calls them financial incentives, but that's basically what they are. So to convince uh, the most powerful family, which are the ones who really hold the power. See, Kim Jong-un doesn't really run the country. There's a bunch of right. families that do. There's been a disintegration of power in the country since the, the death of Kim Jong-un. So, so he's and a figurehead in, in effect right now. He's a figurehead acting uh, by permission. No, 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 no. Or I, wouldn't families go, are... I wouldn't go as far as calling him a puppet, but certainly he doesn't have that monolithic power that his grandfather had. Okay. And then the power became a little bit more fraction with his father, Kim Jong-il, and now with him, it's just a lot of families, and, and you don't really know now who... The most important thing is that now we don't know who holds the reins of these the various security and military groups in the country. So the army, the secret police, we don't really know who's in charge of that anymore. We used to know back with Kim Il-sung. So you think that there's some chance, and, and I urge people to follow you on Twitter so that they can see this article that you're talking about when it comes out, but you're saying that right. there is potentially some chance that a plan like this could be received well uh, in North Korea yeah, because... Yeah, professor who, who's also a friend, I recommend people read his book. He's called, uh, his name is Shepard Iverson. He, re- he recently published a couple of articles, one with Forbes, another one with Foreign Policy, and I think the Washington Quarterly as well. Um, okay. So he details this plan, and it's quite interesting to hear. I'm sure if somebody could deliver a proposal like that to the Trump administration, it's still something that is hard to swallow because it's $170 billion. It would need Taxpayer a lot dollars, of I assume, right? We, we, no, no, we no, no, all no. would have it to pay for this, to- or? Now, it doesn't need to be the U.S. Most of the money would come from the South Korean government, private company. Keep in mind, it's not a lot of money. It looks like a lot of money because with the Iran deal, Americans, as far as I understand, really got a really bad deal. So you didn't get anything in in return, and not even the hostages. With this one, most of the money, 80% of this money, would go to the reconstruction of the country. So to individual North Korean families that are basically the victims of the regime, 20% of the, of the money would buy out the, um, the military. But now this money would come from giants like 
Apple, and then especially more uh, North Korean companies like Samsung, Hyundai, LG, and so forth. I mean, they I'm going to I'm going to pay more, more for my next price. iPhone because of this, is what you're saying. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, if you remember at the height of the Eurozone crisis, they estimated that just one company like Apple could ba- bail out Greece two or three times and still keep some pocket change. That's the kind of money they have. Yes, but then um, pass the prices Samsung, on to me. Samsung alone makes four times or three times the amount of money needed this deal. Right, but they could also invest so it, it in production here and creation of jobs in the United States. You know, well, that's, the that's the thing. North Korea, North Korea is a gold mine waiting to be opened. North Korea holds the world's largest reserves of rare earths. don't know if you know what they are. I've heard of them. I don't know a whole lot about them, but yes. They are the very particular and rare minerals that are badly needed today in the IT industry. Every chip okay. and every phone and everything that you need to build is built on this uh, rare earth. Um, so you're saying, it, you're saying it's an investment. It, it's not some sort of an altruistic thing. Yes. It's designed to be an investment. The, the, the way this plan would work is you buy out the military. The military agrees to put the guns down, so to speak. The South Korean government steps in, slowly reunifies the country, so takes control of the borders and brings Korea back to the state of unity it had before 1910. And then it basically opens uh, the pathway for all these investors, which have put money in. But then, but then you're saying you're saying that they're about they're about to elect a more liberal regime in South Korea. So, is it just going to prolong the time that they're going to come back to a leftist totalitarian form of government? If you no, 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 the, the, the left, the left in the south is is different from the um, in 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 South Korea. You have basically. It's a different kind of left from the United States. They would be okay. much uh, more uh, well predisposed to a plan like this. Okay. There's no and, way and you, that it, the entire country is going to turn communist if that's what he fears. Yes, that, that's exactly what I would fear. No, no. I mean, I think all, the the whole world seems to be sliding towards totalitarian regimes of one type or another, and it's it's a scary prospect because nobody seems to understand that you know, what the, what the true answer and alternative is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think so. South Koreans now are too rich and too, uh, immersed in, 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 in a capitalist system. They have, they know the benefits of it. So if, so if, if you were, if you were Trump's advisor, what you're saying is you would advise him to take the plan of this professor and say his name again. Uh, Shepard Iverson. Shepard Iverson, and you're going to write a review of his book that you're going to be publishing soon, and people can follow you on yeah, Twitter and get a link to that? Yeah, I Okay. Yes, 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 yes. We'll, we'll get a link to that soon. It should go out in a couple of days. Okay, so then let me ask you two questions just about your own. You have recently come to read about objectivism, get involved in objectivism. Is that right? How recently yes. has this been? Oh, uh Reading the materials uh, less than a year ago. 
Okay, uh, wow. And, and then there's been a long translation. Yeah, much, much. I, well, uh, to be honest, I had most of those thoughts in, in, in me after a long transition. Um, but I didn't know that we were called objectivists. And because, uh, uh, well, I was born in the early 70s. Um, if you grew up in Italy, you either have uh, the Catholic Church, which I rejected completely, mm-hmm. and the only alternative was socialism. <laughs> right. There was nothing on the right that was completely taboo. You have to keep in mind, some, somebody like Ayn Rand is influential in the United States. It's pretty much an, an, an American thing. It's, it was virtually unknown back in Italy, uh, probably considered evil. <laughs> and so sure. I have never heard of that for a long time. Uh, and then I, 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 you know, I started to work and, and live abroad and grow up as an individual. And I developed a lot of those thoughts that were conflicting with the reality that increasingly has turned the world into what we have now. So this pathological altruism, uh, this uh, uh, glorification of socialism as a, a system of justice. Uh, uh, and then you have collective rights, which are trumping individual rights, all of the nonsense that we... And I, I know that was wrong, but I didn't know there was somebody called Ayn Rand that had written so many beautiful things about that. So recently, um, well, actually three years ago, when I started my PhD, I decided that because I had finally the money and the time uh, to sit down and read, then I would read all of his, uh, all of her um, writings. And I started with The Virtue of Selfishness. Mm-hmm. And then I intend to go on with the non-fiction material first and then move on to the fiction. I know that people start uh, with uh, Atlas Shrugged, but I actually, don't know Actually, the, the, the best place is to start with the Fountainhead and then save Atlas until after I've, you read the Fountainhead. So you have I'm not read the, you haven't read the fiction yet. No, I, I don't. I have a huge problem reading fiction, all kind of fiction. It, Why? Even if, if it's, a, it's supposed to be illuminating, but if you give me a scientific text or a treaty of philosophy of a thousand pages, I'll go through it. But a novel, I'll fall asleep three pages in. Hmm. It's just the way it's okay. written. Yeah. Now, have <laughs> you, have you tried, I, let me ask you though, have you tried starting either Fountainhead or Atlas? No, and I'll tell you the reason why. I've read the reviews, and if I... You read the reviews? Don't read the reviews before you read the book. No, 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 no. I've read, like, the, I'm sorry, the, the introductions, uh, some, oh, introductions. some analysis. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so because in Atlas, if I'm correct, the whole philosophical foundation is revealed pretty much at the end. So I thought, well, if I have to go through the thick of a book, uh, I'll better get a grasp of, of the of the ideas first, so that I can enjoy the novel more. So that's why I started. So you this, understand? Uh, you've got it. You've got it, oh, John Luca. You've got it. You've got it all backwards, right? So many people who haven't had exposure to Rand before, they read Atlas Shrugged, and they think of the philosophy portion of the book as it gets in the way, and they just want to find out what happens and like. You know, there's there's this one portion of the book that has the philosophy laid out, and it's, it's sort of long. And p- 
people will skip through it and not even read it because they're so excited to figure out what happened. And you're saying, okay, novel, get no, out no. of the way. I, I want the philosophy. philosophy. <laughs> of course. You need, I uh, need to know the rules first. The rules. But, well, but I need this... to know the, 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 uh, the, 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 how do you call that? The deep stuff before anything else? But what you're getting is this dramatic presentation that would give you more of a kind of an organic understanding of, of the ideas. So I would recommend actually diving into the fiction before you do any more. You're an authority and I trust your judgment, but I am, for example, I'm on page six on the virtue of selfishness and each and every paragraph is such an eye opener and it's poetry to me. That reads like poetry. There is nothing more. I haven't read beautiful things like this in I don't know how long. This is It's like okay. giving the gift of sight to a blind man. It's beautiful. I'm sure this One, atlas is just as beautiful. Well, I would say more so, but Probably. one concern is that in some of the nonfiction, you're going to get plot spoilers about the fiction. Oh, and for you oh, for I, you to get the full enjoyment from the fiction, you need to avoid those plot spoilers. Right. Uh, okay. Well, I don't really mind the spoilers because usually when I watch a movie, I ask people uh, about the plot in advance because I want to know how it ends. Otherwise, I, I won't watch it. Sorry. I'm just, it's just the way I'm done. Okay. Uh, but I would yeah. anyway. I, I, for everybody who has not read these books yet, I feel somewhat jealous almost that you can, you know, experience it for the first time and and just you know the novelty not the yeah the novelty of of the book and and what it would be like. I mean, also obviously I read Fountainhead at seventeen, so oh my god, see, I'm the, jealous. Well, <laughs> are you jealous or are you not? I mean, you are going to be able to bring to bear you know, part of a lifetime of, of experience when you're reading it and therefore perhaps get more out of it than I did when I was 17. When I read it when I was 17, I essentially thought, oh, this is obvious. Everyone is going to agree with the view that Rand is presenting in this book and, you know, identify with the characters she would want you to identify with, et cetera. I'm not going to say any more than that. But, you know, for me, I thought, hey, this is just obvious. I had no real world experience. You have the real world experience that you bring to bear when you're reading it as well. So that that's, I, I think it is a value to be exposed at an early age, but if it's true, as you say, that you have come to an uh, understanding that's similar to Rand's through life experience, that yes, has a connection to reality uh, as well. That's good. The thing is, it, I, I'm so happy that I found now, well, it's late, and somehow I regret not doing it when I was 20, but regrets are, are useless. So. Um, but it, it, it validates everything I've been feeling, everything I've felt for the past 20 years of, you know, conflict, and seeing what the world was telling you and knowing that it was wrong and, and that principles and values and ethics were a different thing. And you knew they were different and finally I found this thing. Um, I think it suffers from, at least in Europe, it, it suffers from I'm not going to say censorship, but 
it's obscure. It's not. I'm sure it doesn't have the same place and weight that it has in the United States. Uh, and I, I, think, even in I don't academia, think that there's I, as much going on in Italy as there are in some of the other countries well, in Europe. Well, I, I left Italy 18 years ago, but I lived all around the world. And I lived in East Asia for a number of years, in Venezuela, in Canada, and Finland. I'm, I'm pretty sure in, in Europe, just a tiny few clubs of obscure locations, they, they you know, they gather up and they discuss this kind of thing. That, in, in, in academia, you just don't see it. No, no, There's of course no not in academia. The, the culture. And that's a pity because that's where you should see it. That's where you need it. I read it and I, and I think, okay, I have to give, give this to my students. Right, but if you Which start bringing it into academia, there's there's certain places in academia where if you start bringing this in, you yourself yeah, you will be fired. ostracized. Yeah, so it, it's oh, yeah, it's a danger. Fired. Big time. Yeah, it's fine. You say yeah, okay. It, well, it, yeah, I mean it, that, it's, that's um, my decision as well. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I don't know. I I really don't know why this hasn't. Uh, conquered academia and instead cultural Marxism did. Um, well because because it interferes with it, it, it interferes with the philosophical justification for the people who want to have power over others. Right? Yeah, yeah, it does. But if if you at least well I thought a university ought to be the place where you teach people how to think and know what to think. And certainly, uh, this is not what is happening now. And um, yeah, yeah, well, but she she's right. In order to do this thing, you should rehabilitate first the concept of selfishness. The word itself has become synonym with evil. Um, yeah, I, I mean, in, in essence, up, in essence, people think of selfishness as sacrificing others to you right and 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 there's this i was i was just talking with my friend sunny earlier today and and everybody believes in this false alternative they believe sacrifice is the given and the only question is whether you sacrifice yourself to others the group the state whatever god or you sacrifice other people to you. You take the sacrifice from others, either because they're going to willingly give it to you or by force or whatever. There's got to be sacrifice. And this alternative that Rand yeah. presents of rational self-interest with no sacrifice on anybody's part is they just don't understand it at all. And they reject yeah, it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I have found it to be incredibly useful. Um, and maybe this is why I've started with the nonfiction stuff. Uh, I'm in the final stages of my PhD now, and I've been studying a country like North, North Korea for more than 10 years, uh, even outside of my PhD, because of my work with NK News, and my it's my passion. And it is the absolute diametrical opposite of what Ayn Rand uh, explained. So it, it's the ultimate evil in Ayn Rand's book. Like, um the individual has been completely erased from North Korean society. If you read their documents in Korean, their publications, their magazines, their propaganda, it's fascinating. They managed to completely erase the individual. Mm-hmm. 
not just the notion of individual rights. Uh, they do have a system of collective rights, but if you study the law in North Korea, uh, jurisprudence, the philosophy, and they have a huge production, it's fascinating. And, and, and for me, at least, until I had read the work of Ayn Rand, I knew what I was reading, but I couldn't give a name to the, to the opposite. Say, if you know that there's black in the world, then somewhere there must be white. It's complete opposite. Right. But when it's you when you find it when uh, you find it and she makes explicit and formulates some of the thoughts that you've had maybe partially or fully in your mind, it's 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 wonderful. It's validating. And then of course now we have the internet so you can find all these people who believe exactly. like you do, which is yeah. great as well. So let me ask you this other question, which is how did you get interested in North Korea? Why North Korea? Uh, because um, I find dictatorship fascinating because of this this uh, uh, concept. Um, they usually bring society to collapse. And um, the idea that a very restricted group of people, sometimes even an individual, can exert so much power over millions and millions of people. And uh, it, it, the process of investigating what goes on in, in the society and how they come to yeah, lose their individual con- conscience, their, in, their ability to perceive themselves as individual, and they become part of a ma- machine, really. That, to me, is the, is the fascinating part. Uh, I started with North Korea because a long time ago I took a one-way trip to South Korea to learn the language. And because I wanted to go as far away as possible from Italy, which is this Catholic, force, forcibly altruistic socialist country. Right. Um, and I wanted to go to a place that had traditional values. I really miss, I, I missed order and values and good ethics and respect. I felt that Italy had lost them already by the end of the 90s, if not before that. And with all the corruption and the scandals that we have. So I went to the place that was the most different, and it was South Korea. And then there I learned about this uh, opposite state in the north, and that's where the interest uh, began. Now let me, so when you were experiencing the lack of what you saw as real values in Italy, um, for some reason, I don't know why this came into my mind, but you, you said you liked the interspersing of strange cultural references in my materials with Radiohead, so hopefully you'll excuse me for this one. Uh, Sinead O'Connor <laughs> and and her critiques oh, yeah. of the Pope and stuff, did that resonate with you when that was happening? Um, not much. No, I failed with I that one. Okay, more... that's fine. Huh? <laughs> I failed with that reference. Not them. Okay. Because um, no, no, no. Was... Well, well, I, I liked her because of that, but she, but she has this. Uh, I don't know. She changed too. Um, no, yeah, she changed. Yeah, different per person. Well, I mean, being an Irish, uh, her criticism of the Catholic Church was admirable. I think, but 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 uh, she criticized mostly. I think the political institution and the corruption and the. Scandals that the, the that the Catholic Church hides behind the facade of uh, re, uh, respectability is that the word? Mm-hmm. Um, I 
to me, the interest in criticizing an institution like the Catholic Church or any, any other religion is, is more on the philosophical, uh, on the, the request that they place on the individual to believe things on no evidence or on bad right. evidence, which is even worse. Right, that, versus... And, and and if people are criticizing either the Catholic Church or they're criticizing a communist regime, it's the criticism that this particular institution or regime doesn't practice the ideology faithfully enough, you know, and if they just did it the right way. And I, I, I think I did also get the sense of yeah. that in some of Sinead O'Connor's critique of the Catholic Church. It's that the Catholic Church was not pure enough you know it was hypocritical and yeah, yeah, yeah 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 there's a lot there's yeah, a lot of scandals the same in there with, it's same with with these appeasers of communists and cuba and, and uh, say bernie sanders or all these people that think that cuba is a nice place i mean for, for the love of god i've been dealing with a lot of people that think that north korea is actually a good society because it provides mm. free health care and free education uh I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a whole bunch of people in academia that push the notion that it, because North Korea is more compliant in international terms and international treaties than the United States, then it's a better it's a better place. Oh my gosh! Yeah, oh yeah, my yeah, gosh. yeah. Like the, and especially on the environment, like uh, because the United States has, uh, it doesn't really care for the Kyoto protocol and whatnot, and you can see that as a reaffirmation of the individual or nationalism, meaning as the country is sovereign. The country will decide or, yeah, what to do with the environment. Asserting our national self-interest, perhaps, right? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, North Korea is way more compliant in that sense, and there's a lot of people that because climate change now is the god, <laughs> right. And I don't discuss that, but I discuss the dogma. When, when, any, when anything becomes dogmatic, then I refuse the dogma. Yes. I refuse people telling me what to think because you just have to think it. Like you have to provide evidence, or I will yeah. probably, you know, pump, you know, punch your face or something. <laughs> no, and 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 that goes back to again and. Now I tie that back into your interest in the education system, I guess, in North Korea as well, right? The whole idea yeah, is yeah, yeah, teaching yeah. people to think for themselves versus absorb some sort of pre-digested slogans and, and, and such. So, okay, I was already thinking this in, in my mind uh, during some of your remarks. And then Richard, who's over here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio, also brought this up. Maybe the thing that you should read fiction-wise first from Rand is Anthem. Have you heard of Anthem? Actually, no, but I'll take the okay. suggestion. So Anthem, you can read in two hours, okay? Okay. And it will give you Rand's idea of what a futuristic, dystopian, totalitarian society would look like. Um, the workings okay, so of it and, and, and the effect on the individual, et cetera, the stuff that you say that you're interested in, in looking at. So if, if, you, yeah. if you were to encounter a dramatic fictional portrayal from Rand of this sort of thing that you have an academic interest in, is that enough to get you to read fiction? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, from what I've read about... But it's only Apple, a couple hours. Uh, so- only a couple hours. Yes, I will. Okay. So from, from what I've read about Atlas, the society she depicts there 
looks tremendously closed in our Korean society. <laughs> really, really bad. Which now, is Anthem, that, Anthem that is no even more so. People in our yeah. Oh, An- oh, okay. Well, yeah. I'll take your word that. I'll, I'll, I promise I'll start with that. Have you, have you read 1984, Orwell? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've read that when I was 14 or something. Okay. So from what I understand, Orwell probably read Anthem before he wrote 1984. And so okay. what you'll read in Anthem is Rand's version. There's, there is one dramatic difference between the totalitarian society that she depicts and the one that Orwell depicts. And I'm not going to say anything more than that. You'll see when okay. you get the book. But yeah, so, <laughs> right. so that's, that's, that's your assignment. I want to hear back if you've, uh, once you've read that. I will, or I will not let you down. I promise. So I, I want to go in a couple minutes here, but I want to give you a chance to plug whatever it is that you would like to plug. I already put the link to your Twitter on my program notes. Yeah, I recently joined. Uh, I, I've stayed away from social me- media because for the most part, it seems to me they're an echo chamber for a lot of people that need attention. But uh, I wanted to promote things. And uh, so instead of Facebook, I chose Twitter because it's a good way to follow the news as well. And I mean, look what he brought me on, on the show. So <laughs> there, there you go. So, you yeah, are. You're, promoting, experience, you're promoting yourself uh, right now. Facebook is a good way yeah. to connect, but uh, I actually do have an article in my program notes today about Facebook and some of the downsides of, of Facebook as well. So I'm sympathetic with yeah. those people who say they don't want to be on Facebook, even though I get a lot of I was because I've lived abroad for so long and I got friends scattered all over the planet. So it's, it's convenient, but it's also a waste of time. And, be, and because I'm closing in on my PhD, I just want to be as productive as I can. Trying to at least because Facebook can be a huge distraction, especially oh, yeah. if you're away from home and things like that. And 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 the other thing that I wanted to do is, uh, but maybe after off the show, I can take some advice from you. Is how I wanted to start writing from some conservative outlets, but I'm not American, so I'm not familiar with many of them. In a way, I've studied a lot of things, but I'm not familiar with uh, the conservative. Uh, society and politics of the United States. I know some names, um, but I'm, I, did, I don't know which one would be a good outlet for me to write okay. to. Well, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll follow up and we, can, and we can message about that. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and I've got to get on to that list of, of program notes that I have. But I thank you so much for calling in and, and sharing your perspective on North Korea. And I urge everybody thank to you follow me. you. On, on Twitter so that they can get that article that you talked about and um, right. and learn more about what Trump should do. Thanks very much, John Luca. Okay. Thanks so much, Amy. Okay. Okay, well, I hope all of you enjoyed that discussion. That was a fun one for me, but now I've got, I always get myself into this, though. If I go over to my blog and walk you through the program notes, as I said, the show title today was mostly inspired by this tax cut that Trump is just trotting out in advance of the April 29th deadline for his first 100 days to show that he's actually done something productive along the lines of what he's actually promised, which he really hasn't. I mean, was he, you know, I've got this tweet 
embedded in the program notes. And he says, no matter how much I accomplished during the ridiculous standard of the first 100 days, and it has been a lot, including Supreme Court, media will kill. You know, of course, he has to fit that into 140 characters. But the Supreme Court was a given. Any Republican was going to appoint Gorsuch. And if anybody gets credit for having gotten it done, it's the people in the Senate who decided to do the nuclear option for better or worse to get that appointment done. Gorsuch was at the top of anybody's list. So I don't know that you give Trump credit for that. You give Trump credit for getting rid of some of the regulations. Um, It's not clear what, you know, really what he's doing with that you know is it is he doing it in a principled fashion or it's just a response to different pressure groups and things like that i would say that there's been a lot of smoke and mirrors we haven't gotten our obama care repeal in any way shape or form and i don't know if there's any hope the tax cut provisions that he's trotting out there who knows what the final plan that gets passed is actually going to look like. It's really meaningless at this point. And that's why I said I was tempted to say Potemkin tax plan. And why not just say that with Donald Trump, we may get a Potemkin presidency. I saw earlier that Craig in the chat room over at blog talk radio says, well, aren't all presidents like that? Probably Craig, probably, but maybe it's just striking me as more so in the person of, of Donald Trump. Uh, If you want the Donald Trump presidency to not be so Potemkin, if you want them to, quote, reorganize the executive branch, actually getting rid of some departments, you think you can have some input, some meaningful input in that regard, Gene Walsh sent me a link that you can use to put your input into a survey. Is that just something so that you feel like you have been heard in some way? You know, Donald Trump's on Twitter. You can tweet to him and suddenly you feel heard, but nothing happens. Will anything happen with this? I don't know. Again, I I pose it as a question. I'm not saying for sure we're going to have a Potemkin presidency or a fake presidency from Donald Trump, but we're going to find out. Uh, Another thing I recommend that you look at over in the program notes, if you can, and there's no way I could do this article just that it's, it's a lengthy article by New York Times based on interviews with Mark Zuckerberg and other people at Facebook can Facebook fix its own worst bug? And by its worst bug, I think what they mean is, and this is something that Jean-Luc actually talked about on the call, this idea that we're all in our media bubble. We're all in our own little self-reinforcing ideological bubble in social media. And you know, that basically that is not leading to the type of thinking that's conducive to persuasion of other people, any sort of meaningful social change and stuff like that. And in fact, probably what it is helping, I hadn't even thought about this before, but, you know, we've talked about on campus that a lot of leftists are resorting to violence in order to shut down conservatives, Right. You know, they don't want Ann Coulter to speak. Of course, Bernie Sanders has defended Ann Coulter's right to speak at Berkeley. And I I think he did a pretty good job of it as well. I mean, he, he got to the essence, which is, you know, what sort of intellectual bankruptcy are we demonstrating when all we can do is shout? And I don't think he I don't know if he talked about using violence, but, you know, shout her down and prevent her from speaking as opposed to actually address her arguments. Perhaps this 
isolation that everybody is achieving by living in their social media bubbles on Facebook and elsewhere could be contributing to the problem where people think, well, I can't actually communicate with these people that I disagree with. All I can do is, is resort to stopping them in, in some way. Uh, one of the things that they do talk about is a, as a potential downfall of Facebook. Zuckerberg is supposedly actually questioning whether it is good to connect the world the way that he has, that perhaps he is contributing to people, you know, kind of, you know, getting into their, their little bubbles, I guess, becoming reinforced in their bubbles and then getting into conflicts with other people. But I put a link to a story that tells you another downfall of the service that Facebook provides. Facebook has this wonderful thing called live video. And we already had a situation earlier, maybe was it just last week or something, where a man kills a police officer and then later he gets caught and he kills himself or something. So he, you know, at least we didn't have to spend a lot of money on him. But just today, saw this story in New York Times, a father in Thailand killed his 11-month-old daughter live on Facebook, on Facebook Live video. And then he turns it off to kill himself. I mean, you know, at least let us see the scumbag die himself. But, um, you know, I, I wouldn't myself necessarily get rid of the Facebook Live feature, so I want to be clear about that. But what I did post about it, and I, this is true, if Facebook had decided, if they want to decide to get rid of the live video because they don't want to give any slight bit of reinforcement to scumbags who want to do this sort of thing. You know, they get off on having an audience for this horrific act. I wouldn't blame Facebook if they made that decision. Obviously it's their service. They can provide it or not. It's not the service that causes it, you know, nor just like guns or any other weapons don't cause these horrific things. But wow, um, you know, if, if I'm Zuckerberg and I'm saying, look, I provided the platform for this scumbag, I, you know, I'd feel for the guy. Um, but I do recommend reading, Can Facebook Fix Its Own Worst Bug? You get to see how Zuckerberg is, I believe, earnestly and honestly struggling with what role he wants Facebook to play because it's really, I think, expanded and influenced beyond what he had originally envisioned. And one of the big things, of course, is that Facebook is a provider of news. Our friends are providers of news. And by the way, thanks to everyone who gives me news stories. Some people actually send me news stories through the Don't Let It Go on Her page on Facebook. Other people, I just mooch off of your news feeds and take stories, and, and I thank you for it. I always try to give hat tips whenever I remember and, and things like that. Uh, speaking of which, here's one that I grabbed this morning from Mark Natickman. Nearly $1 billion in side deals for the California gas tax have been approved. And apparently, per my friend Sean, this story has little real substance in terms of what sort of horrific gas tax hike us Californians are about to face. As I understood it, the gas tax that we had before this, uh, I'm getting some sort of nasty pop-up ad in my ear. Um, the, the gas tax that we had before was this flux idea. And the way that I cynically described it, you know, it was, it was flexible. The tax could be higher or lower, basically depending on bureaucrat and politician whim. And the way that I was cynically thinking about it was, 
that if the price of oil was going down, then they would go ahead and increase the tax because they figure, well, you know, we can absorb it. We can, we won't even notice that we're being taxed more if the price of oil is lower. And so we'll just pay it like the little sheep and minions that we are and and just go on. I don't know what it is now. And in fact, apparently this article doesn't give you, but what it does is it tells you that in order to strap Californians with even more taxes on gasoline, they had to do a whole bunch of wheeling and dealing, even with the Democratic majorities in both houses of the legislature here. So if there's anything worse than a huge tax hike on fuel that we need to get around in California on the congested roads, wasting it, installed traffic, et cetera, et cetera. If there's anything worse than that, it is a bunch of side deals made at taxpayer expense that were tacked onto it in order to get it through. So it's tax upon tax upon tax here in the people's state of California. It's horrific. It will make you mad. And what also will make you mad is that you don't get the straight scoop in in the stories anymore. In the chat room, they're still kind of uh, talking about Trump. Um, maybe Trump will discover objectivism like our last guest did late in the game. <sighs> you know, I know that I think he had a sit down, either he or Pence or both, I think, with Sean Allison, right, talking about that potential Treasury appointment. I wonder if Allison told him anything about it or whether he's too late. To, he's a lost cause. I once heard of. And I, I knew this man. He was really, he was a great man. Um, so much fun. I, don't, I'm not, I guess I'm not going to say his name. Um, he discovered objectivism. He was a real estate agent, discovered objectivism at the age of 72. And he was so excited, read it, got involved in a big way. And I remember that I was working, this is, I, I worked part-time at the Ayn Rand Institute when I was in college, and I'd answer the phones. And he'd ask for somebody, he'd call, he'd ask for somebody at the Institute, and he'd say, and I'd say, may I ask who's calling, which is supposed to be polite, may I ask who's calling? And he'd say, yes. (laughs) And I'd be just stopped and um, can I ask who's calling? (laughs) I didn't know what he, he'd just say, yes. And what he wanted me to ask is what was in his mind as an old fashioned businessman, he wanted me to say, who's calling, please. Finally, I learned and I did, but I had been taught, I think even by my mother, my mother ran a printing company and taught me, you know, who may I ask who's calling may I ask? Yeah. And he, he answered it literally. Yes, you may. And he was waiting for me to ask. He was waiting for me to say, who's calling. Anyway, learn more than that from this man, but uh, awesome. But it just shows you, yeah, someone who, maybe like Jean-Luca has the life experience to be receptive to those ideas and maybe has gone a long way towards reaching those ideas themselves can benefit from it at a later stage. So going back over to the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. Actually, let me look. I've got somebody who's been holding online. Make sure that they also weren't wanting to talk. If you did want to call in and and talk a little, I might have a minute or two, 760-888-5817. But I did talk longer with Jean-Luca than I had originally planned, but it was great. So I was happy to do it. 
uh, at the program notes, don'tletitgo.com. Another story from a friend, Daniel Henry, thank you for sending it. Becoming disabled by choice, not chance. Quote, unquote, trans-abled people feel like imposters in their fully working bodies. And I've heard of this before. I remember several years ago probably sharing in program notes a story like this. Someone, some kind of psychological aberration, believes that a fully working body is not who they actually are. They self-identify with somebody who, for example, has a leg amputation. And so they actually go and get a doctor to amputate a leg. This happens. It happens way more than it should, which is not at all. It's a, it's a very scary prospect. What was the last guest's name? His name is Gianluca Spezza, and you can follow him on Twitter. I've got the link to his Twitter on the program notes at, at don'tletitgo.com, Gianluca Spezza. And again, he's a Ph.D. candidate right now. He's, if he's going to try to bring Ayn Rand's ideas into his work and then seek a job in academia, I think he's got a bit of a challenge. But it, it depends on the field, and it depends where he's applying. It can, it can happen. Artists, a number of artists, they call themselves artists, I would say no, have urged Radiohead to scrap a show, an upcoming show that they have in Israel. This is a story from France24.com. I follow them on Twitter, and they provide a lot of good news, uh, a lot of valuable news from France 24. So I like to follow them. It says dozens of artists, including Roger Waters. I've heard of him doing this forever. Roger Waters called Monday on Radiohead to cancel a concert in Israel, saying the band known for its left-wing politics should join Palestinian activists boycott calls. The English experimental rock icons, Radiohead they're referring to, are scheduled to play in Tel Aviv on July 19th, closing a tour that includes premier festivals at Coachella and Glastonbury. I know that they were just playing at Coachella. And if I could stand the crowds and the hassle and all that at Coachella, I would. But I certainly wouldn't want to go it alone, and that's what I'd be doing right now. So uh, I know some friends that are at Coachella, and I hope you guys are having a good time. And I hope you saw Radiohead because I, re- I do enjoy them. They have some weird music, but they also have some really good music. I shared a sample of that in the program notes for you. Some of you who have been following my show for a long time know that I originally used this song like spinning plates that I shared with you. I use that as the intro music. It's uh, it's that pretty. I think it's, it's a little, I would say uh, depressing compared to what I have now though. It's not, I, I like the, the stronger music that I have now, but it, it's very, very pretty. Uh, Radiohead has played benefits for Tibetans' rights and Amnesty International in the battle against climate change, you know, the god of climate change. Quote from the letter, since Radiohead campaigns for freedom for the Tibetans, we're wondering why you turned down a request to stand up for another people under foreign occupation. End quote. By the people under foreign occupation, they mean the so-called Palestinians. And the violation of basic rights by Israel and international law is what they're saying. Surely if making a stand against the politics of division, of discrimination, and hate means anything at all, it means standing against it anywhere, and that has to include what happens to Palestinians every day. End quote. So this letter completely drops the context 
that the Palestinians are the ones that reject a two-state solution, as it's called. They all believe that Israel should not exist. And yet Roger Waters and all of these other horrible jerks are saying that Radiohead should boycott Israel because Israel asserts its own right to its continued existence as the most, what we would call free, I'm not going to say democratic because democratic itself doesn't mean free, as, as the freest country in the region, as the one that respects the rights of its citizens the most, Israel is supposed to feel guilty when it, all it wants to do is you know, ensure its continued existence. So, you know, for my part, I'm going to boycott all of these people. And kudos to the ones who have continued to play shows in Israel. The article here at French 24 lists Paul McCartney, the Rolling Stones, Elton John, and Bon Jovi, all of whom have performed in Israel in recent years. So kudos to all of you. Put on some more Elton John music, some more Stones music. I can take or leave the Paul McCartney or the the Bon Jovi, but I'll go ahead and spin some more of, of the other stuff and show support for the people with the, the right ideas. We got over here in the chat room. Yeah, Herman the German says, so sick of these Palestinian activists. They are everywhere. Yeah, they are everywhere. You know, Roger Waters provided some value in, in Pink Floyd, but I can totally leave his solo work without any sacrifice. And these other bands, I don't even think I've ever listened to them. So no no big sacrifice there on the, on the basis of principle. Some good news. This is from Rob Abiera. SCOTUS, Supreme Court says that the states have no right to money that's taken based on overturned convictions. That's a headline from a reason.com article. It says this week, the Supreme court ruled that Colorado has no right to keep fines, fees, court costs, and restitution. It extracts from criminal defendants whose convictions are later reversed by forcing people to prove their innocence before they can get back property is rightfully theirs. The court said, Colorado has been violating the 14th Amendment guarantee of due process. Civil forfeiture. Nope, can't do it. The Institute for Justice, which filed a brief in the case emphasizing that the presumption of innocence is an essential aspect of due process, makes a compelling argument that civil asset forfeiture routinely violates that principle. This is the case of Nelson versus Colorado. And it was joined by seven justices. Um, Clarence Thomas actually apparently dissented. That's interesting. I'd like to read that. It says, Neil Gorsuch joined the court too recently to participate. Huh. I want to read a Clarence Thomas dissent because, as many of you know, Clarence Thomas has been influenced by Rand. And he sees himself as somewhat of an originalist. Are they going to say, oh, well, because the founding fathers would have said that this was okay, therefore it's okay, even though it violates the principle of individual rights that is the essence, the conscience of the Constitution, as Timothy Sandifer would put it. Anyway, overall, good news. Uh, It's kind of sad to see Thomas on the other side, and I'm scared to think that Gorsuch might be on the other side of a case like that, but I'm glad to see so many justices come out against civil asset forfeiture. And then finally, I'm going to leave you with a wonderful 
something that just really warms my heart to see. And thanks to Brian Yoder for posting this article. If I was a true Milo fan, I just kind of, I guess, revealed that I'm not as big a Milo fan. I would have found this article myself, but I had to rely on Brian to, to share it instead. Published April 24th over at MiloYiannopoulos.net. ISIS vows to kill a man who did what, right? I mean, they're threatening to kill all kinds of people. This man hacked 250 jihadi Twitter accounts, hacked all those jihadi Twitter accounts. And what did he do? He filled them with gay porn. So he made, he made it look as if these Twitter accounts were posting gay porn. It was a beautiful thing. Um, I don't even know if I can pronounce the name, the, the, I guess the handle of this hacker, Watchula Ghost, Watchula Ghost, W-A-U-C-H-U-L-A Ghost. This is the hacker allegedly responsible for hacking more than 250 ISIS Twitter accounts has received threats of an impending beheading, reports The Sun. It states that Wachala Ghost decided to target ISIS accounts with the help of his cohorts after realizing somebody had to, quote, stand up to them following the Orlando nightclub shooting last year. Speaking with CNN, the anonymous man stated that he had received beheading images and death threats as a result of his actions. Not surprising. He says, that's good because if they're focusing on me, then they're not doing anything else, he said, adding that he began the endeavor as a means of trolling ISIS. We thought that putting the naked images would offend them. <laughs> it is awesome. It's beautiful. It will put a smile on your face. Yeah, people are saying, Jack, by a ghost, LOL. Yeah, no, it is, it is awesome. So go look at that if you need a little bit of good news in your day. And what I'd like to do, if I can do this in an efficient manner, is I'm going to try to leave you with a little bit of music. So now I'm going to have to make all the noise and plug in my phone. Let's see. I'm just going to go ahead and leave you with like spinning plates. Oh no, I can't plug in my phone because I have the new phone. Can I plug it into my computer? Oh, this is so sad. Oh no. Okay. Um, sorry, people. I do have to um, leave you without the musical interlude that I wanted to. Go to my blog, don'tletitgo.com. Play like spinning plates. Enjoy the song. I haven't played it as an intro for a long time. And thank you for sticking around and enjoying this show with me. I really enjoyed that first hour. Thanks to Jean-Luc Spezza for calling in at the late hour at his time. Oh, people are asking, is that boo in the background? No, that's my ringtone. So, unfortunately, I, I left my phone on. So, that's embarrassing as a professional talk show host to have a ring in the background. Anyway, thank you. I'm going to cut out early here, and I'm going to talk to you guys next week. And join me, same time, same channel. Take care. <laughs>